Welcome to the Gritty Leaders Club, episode number 28. And today I'm going to be interviewing Martin G. Moore. I'll tell you a little bit about Martin in a minute. But before I do, let me ask my co-host Ben Wells what's caught his attention. What's got my attention, Ian, is our conversation about changing it up on the podcast. Great. One of the things we've talked about is retiring that question, what's caught our attention. So the last time we asked that and answered that was the last time. And we will be ushering in some improvements next episode in three weeks time. So that's the first snippet, three weeks, three weeks time. And we're keeping the rest up our sleeves, but we're loving doing this, Ian. And uh, we've taken a long, hard look and we've stripped out the parts we don't like. Uh, we've added in a couple of new ideas and looking forward to, to recording and finding out whether we are hitting the mark. Absolutely. And what everyone should be doing all the time is looking at what they're doing and saying, how do we make this better? How do we shake it up? And that's exactly what we've done. So I hope everyone is going to enjoy the slightly revised versions of what we're doing. And no doubt you'll tell us as we go along. Now, Ian, you've been talking to Marty. Over to you to introduce. Okay, well, Martin, like a lot of successful people, he dropped out of university and went on to achieve some pretty amazing things. He started in software development, and after becoming successful and a sought-after project director in Australia, he got his first appointment at sea level and was chief information officer for an ASX top 50 mining company. At the same time, he started an MBA, and he's gone on to work across different industries and in different roles at sea level. For example, he's been CIO, he's been a CFO, and he's been a head of strategy. He's also been the SVP of marketing, and eventually he went on to be CEO of CS Energy, a multi-billion dollar energy company. And he spent five years there turning it around. After CS Energy, he decided what he wanted to do was set up his own business. And he set up CEO Mentor with his daughter, Emma Green. And in his own words, it was to improve the quality of leaders globally. A few short years later, he started the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast, which has been downloaded over 1.5 million times in over 70 countries. And he's now gone on to write a book called No Bullshit Leadership, which comes out on the 31st of August this year. So he had a lot to say in this interview, a tremendous character, and I really think our listeners are going to enjoy it. Let's hear it. Well, hello and welcome to the Gritty Leaders Club. Today, we're very fortunate in having Martin G. Moore with us. So, Martin, welcome to the Gritty Leaders Club. Thanks very much, Ian. Thanks for having me. It's fantastic to be here. Today, I guess the main thing we're going to talk about is this new book you've got coming out, which is No Bullshit Leadership, which has got a fantastic title. I love it. It fits beautifully with the Gritty Leaders Club, of course. So tell us, where does this idea of no bullshit come from? Well, it goes back quite a way, actually, Ian. The, the book is named along the same lines as our podcast, which we released in September of 2018. And that was the first product that we released when I started this business, Your CEO Mentor. Funnily enough, with my 31-year-old daughter, Emma, at the time she was 27 or 28, what could possibly go wrong, I hear you ask. But, uh, <laughs> but basically, I was coming off the back of a lengthy corporate career. I'd just been five years in a chief executive role at a company called CS Energy in Australia, which was a large electricity utility. And I decided I didn't want to keep going down the corporate path. 
So I did the unintuitive and stepped away from a well-paid, secure corporate job and stepped into a micro startup, which was an interesting story in itself. Yeah, I've gone down a similar path in the past myself, so I know what a big jump that is. Your book, and I've had the pleasure of going through a draft copy before you get to finally launch it in August, it really hits hard. And I love the fact that it gives you very clear direction. There's questions at the end of every chapter. You sum it up at the end. It's really practical for people to grab and get hold of. There's this theme going through it. Let's get to the nub of it. Let's not dilly-dally around these things. Let's focus on what's really important. Tell us more about this angle, where that came from for you. Why the no bullshit stuff, which I love by the way, but why is it? Why do you want to get to that? Well, I think it was born partly out of frustration, Ian, because I started to realize that most of the leadership content that was out there in the public discourse was very much aspirational. So the conversation started to become about uh, desirable leadership attributes. Great leaders are humble, great leaders are fallible, great leaders are transparent, great leaders have integrity, all of which is true, but when you hear that mm. stuff, it's inspiring and motivating, but it's completely useless because if I decided I wanted to be more humble, where on earth would I start? Um, how would I actually go about doing that? There was no practical roadmap. Yeah. And through forging my corporate career, I'd realized that there are things that as a leader you have to do that are habits and disciplines and behaviors that lead to results. And my basic premise for all of this is leadership is about getting results. That's it, full stop mm. uh, for your US listeners period. That's the end of it. It's about driving value and getting results. Now, of course, value comes in all different shapes and sizes. But the ability to be able to say, if you do these things and you do them consistently, it'll improve your leadership capability. It'll change the way your people see you as a leader. And it'll change the ability for you to get their discretionary effort from them so that you can get results. And that's really the cornerstone of everything. So the no bullshit concept really came from, let's forget about the virtue signaling. Let's forget about the leadership mm. platitudes. Let's start talking about the things that you need to do differently because let's face it, this is not a walk in the park. This is not, this is not easy. You've got to do some hard things to be a good leader. And I'm going to give you the roadmap to see what those are if you choose to pick up those tools and use them. Now, having those thoughts in your head is one thing. Putting them into a book is quite another. So what drove you to actually put this down in a book? This is hard work as well, isn't it? As well as being a leader, writing a book is no walk in the park. No, it's not. But, you know, the, the, um, the process was surprisingly uh, easier than I thought. In other ways, it was much harder than I expected it to be. But, but it was relatively straightforward because, as my mentor in the US, Nick Morgan, says, you're not really undertaking a creative process. The content is so well known to you that it's like each chapter is filling a bucket. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're basically taking things that you know and learning how to write and describe them in a way that's accessible to everyone. And, of course, I love the concept of being able to take really complex human behavioral concepts and to boil them down into something that's relatively simple to understand and even better find a way to actually pick up some tools that can make a difference in how you do that and so it was all about that challenge mm. of making the observation of what works and what doesn't in leadership and i would seen a lot of it in different industries and different job families and then to be able to distill that into something that's useful and i think we had plenty of time to mm. sort of road test these concepts through the podcast we've been releasing an episode each week since September of 2018, so over 150 episodes now. And we also developed an online leadership program called Leadership Beyond the Theory, where we first put down these um, seven imperatives for uh, no bullshit leadership. And so we've basically built on this and road tested it and seen how it goes in the actual trenches when leaders take this and use it in all different types of industries and companies. 
And we're pretty confident that these things are helping leaders everywhere to be different. I think those seven areas are great, aren't they? It's interesting when you when you pick up any leadership book and they approach it in many different ways. Some are very complex. Some you think, really, is this in the same chapter with that same title they started with? But I love the simplicity of getting seven key areas down there and working through them. And I'd like to go straight into one of those areas, which you've talked about already, this delivering value, which is probably the fundamental thing leaders have to do, deliver value. And you've got some great questions in here. And page 72, so there you are. I'll really show there, Martin. I've read the book. <laughs> yes, you page have. Se- <laughs> page 72. If you had one year left in an organization, what's the one or two things you'd like to put on your resume that you had achieved? I love that question. It gives real focus on what a person says they're actually going to do. And I imagine, and tell me about this, tell me the story behind this, I love it. This must also show you if these people are thinking strategically enough or too tactically, and really whether they should be on the leadership team or not. Tell me more about that, because I love that kind of question. So, so revealing, that question, Ian. And it's so useful from a number of perspectives, but I stumbled upon this completely accidentally. I was running a leadership forum for the top 50 leaders in the company I was running, and I was really struggling to get them to understand the difference between just going through the motions, cranking the handle and generating a lot of activity, and really focusing on those you know, two, three or four things that were really gonna drive value in their part of the world. And so in my exasperation and frustration, I found myself at the front of this group saying, guys, value is what you've got to focus on. All this stuff before the value comes does nothing for us. I wanna hear the sound of that coin dropping in the tin, and I wanna know where it's going, I wanna know when it's coming, and I wanna know how this is improving the business. Like your job is to improve the business wherever you look. And so I found that question as a way of saying, think about it in your own terms. Let's personalize it. What if you only had a year left here Mm. and then you had to go out in the market and fend for yourself? What would you want to show on that resume that everyone was gonna look at and say, wow, I've got to hire that guy or I've got to hire that woman. It, It was something that basically said, whatever makes extreme value to a future employer, well, that's probably going to deliver value here as well. So think about not creating a new mm. process or going through some compliance activity or whatever the things are that occupy your days, but rather think about mm. what's that result out the back end? How are you going to actually demonstrate that you've achieved a high value result? And did you get people really showing their true colours that really you thought, oh dear, if that's the best they can come up with, I'm not sure. I think they need maybe a bit more coaching or maybe they've gone to the wrong level. (laughs) Did you get some? (laughs) Yes, yes I did, Ian. And one or two were actually as a result of this and not immediately from that meeting, but over time, I had to free them up to be successful in other organisations. So uh, yes, there was certainly this, (laughs) this revealing thing of, you know, they simply didn't understand the fundamental premise of why they were there. And they couldn't connect Mm the things that were important to the organisation strategically, and we're talking about the top two layers of leadership there, they couldn't fundamentally understand how what they did day to day was going to impact and contribute to the overall organisational outcomes. And if that was the case, they certainly wouldn't be able to describe that to their people and organise their groups in a way that was going to be conducive to delivering value. Uh, And so, yeah, sure, we worked with a few guys for a while and it became obvious they just didn't get it. And, you know, through no fault of their own, Some people are extremely mired in detail and minutiae of the things that they do. And I think people like that, unfortunately, sometimes get promoted beyond their level of capability because they don't have that that contextual abstract thinking ability that lets you put things into context and see patterns and do the things you need to do as a senior leader. 
So we discovered a few of those people, funnily enough, through that exercise. Yeah. You've got a whole chapter on working at the right level, which I mm. like. I, I, you can't always tell those people who are working great as maybe a division head and suddenly they are on the leadership team. And it's not always obvious to them what the big differences are. But let's go back to chapter three, conflict aversion. And you talk about conflict aversion is going to hold us back. In our DNA, we all want to be liked and there has to be respect before being popular. Mm. Now, this is hard for some people to overcome, isn't it? We walk around and we like people to like us. And this is a real fundamental 180 when you become a leader to understand you can't please all the people. Sometimes you can't please many of the people all the time. So what are your tips on this? When you become a leader, suddenly you realize it's not about being liked, it's about being respected. How do you get over that? What are the, some of the things that you would help people on that journey? Well, there are a number of things. I focus down quite heavily on the one-on-one -on -one interactions that you have with your team as a leader. Now, obviously, conflict aversion is going to hold you back in so many different circumstances. Decision-making, it's going to hold you back and slow you down because if you're worried about making the wrong decision or a decision that's unpopular, then you'll vacillate and you'll hesitate and you'll procrastinate and you'll hide in a corner. So if you want to make decisions quickly, you can't be too worried about the fact that some people aren't going to like it. And of course, by definition, the higher up in an organisation you go, the less likely it is that you're going to have universal acceptance of anything you do, any decision. Sitting in a negotiation. A negotiation is an adversarial construct. You know that there is going to be conflict there. And I've seen a lot of people who are extraordinarily skilled at the technical aspects of negotiation who simply don't have the temperament mm. for it because they can't handle the conflict when it arises. And they start to lose their cool or they become fearful or frustrated and they can't bring it back online. So as a leader, almost everything you do requires some form of conflict or the potential for some. And so I think the best place to start is with those one-on-one -on -one individual meetings with the people who report directly to you. And the reason for that is because they're the hardest. The reason they're the hardest is because they're the people you're closest to, they're the ones you have the most contact with, they're the ones who you really need to like you because you feel as though that's how you're going to get things done. And if you choose to avoid those meetings for feedback and another critique, no one knows whether you're doing it or not. It's invisible. Your boss can't see it. Only you and the person involved know that you're not holding those meetings. And so the ability and opportunity to avoid them is really, really high. So I start with the discipline of doing that. And there are five key mm -hmm. things which I call the, the lenses through which you can look at feedback. It's a psychological thing. It's a 90% will and 10% skill. So getting your head around yep. why you should do it what's important about giving people feedback and then forcing yourself to do that, even when you don't want to do it, that's really the path to victory. Mm. And as I say in the book, it's like learning how to ski in powder snow. Um, I learned to ski in Australia where most seasons would only pass for downhill ice skating. But uh, once you find yourself in waist deep powder snow in Colorado, it's a different ball game. And as much as you can learn about the technique of doing it and listen to an instructor tell you what to do, the long and short of it mm. is, you've just got to get enough miles under your skis. You just got to do it enough mm. until it feels comfortable. And there's a bunch of stuff in leadership that's just like that. You just got to force yourself to do it until all of a sudden you wake up one day and you go, ah, I can actually do that. It's pretty good. Now, you've also said it's okay to be friendly, but probably not to be friends. You need to keep that distance. And again, that's quite hard, isn't it? I was mentally cross-referencing against Gallup Q12. One of their questions is, have you got a good friend at work? And here we have <laughs> something which is saying, 
You know, the funny thing is, in the UK, I always say to UK audience, look, this was written probably mainly for a US audience. And we need to think about what that question means in the UK culture. Because people push back at me when I talk about that and say, well, really, have I got to have a good friend here, Ian? And I say, you've probably got to have some friends in the organization. And we're not talking about leadership here. We're talking about the people around you, your peer groups and mm. so on. But tell me more about this, because it's an interesting issue. This isn't about friendly, but not actual friends as a leader. Yes, and look, I think probably one way of describing it is that you need to have very strong relationships with people. And a strong mm. relationship is something where you have trust and you have empathy and you have compassion and you have an established care factor between the two of you. And that's really important to do. But that doesn't mean that you're out on a Friday night dancing on tables with them at two o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a line to be drawn in. And that line is sometimes quite hard to work out where it is. And we see many CEOs around the world constantly crossing the line in the eyes of mm -hmm. shareholders, staff, and uh, their board of directors and paying the price for that. And I think it is a trick, particularly if you get promoted to run a team that you have formerly been a member of. And mm. you may have had some of those much more social and relaxed relationships with some of the people in the team. When you step up to lead that team, it's very hard to change a relationship that's already been established as being a very social relationship. So as I used to say, when I have people who report to me, I want to know their kids' names. I want to know what their interests are. I want to know what they do on the weekends. I want to know what drives them. I want to know all these things. And I'm quite happy for them to know the same about me. But I don't want to be at their place every Sunday afternoon for a barbecue. And I don't want to be drinking mm. with them on a Saturday night because this familiarity breeds two things that are a problem. For me as a leader, I'm going to cut them more slack than I should. And mm. when other people in the team see that, then all of a sudden it looks like it's favoritism and it looks like we're not running a meritocracy, but we're playing favorites. For the person who reports to me, who's a friend with me, then for them, all of a sudden, they're going to take liberties that they otherwise wouldn't take. Not maliciously and not intentionally, but that's what will happen subconsciously because they know me well. They know how I'm going to react to certain things. They know, they know what I'll tolerate and what I won't, much better than someone who doesn't have that really close relationship. So the, the little expression I've coined, friendly not friends, is really just about knowing where that line is, and for everyone it's different, but knowing where that line is and observing it so that you don't lose your power as a leader, so that it doesn't disempower yourself mm. or the team that you lead. I love that. I guess you've turned down a few barbecues in your time then. Yes, I have, but I've also been to a few. I mean, it's okay occasionally, right? It's just, <laughs> yeah, you've just, got to, yeah, you've just got to pick yeah. the context, right? You've just got to be aware. You've got to be situationally aware all the time. That's right. You, you can see it, can't you, when you walk into a group of leaders and you can see this is the CEO and he's very, very chummy with the CFO or he's very, very chummy with the CIO and you think, hmm, everyone can see this. Everyone's now playing a kind of slightly different game because they can see these two are so connected and that really sort of forges a little bit of dysfunction amongst the rest of the team I think. Oh it, it certainly does Ian. Let's go on to another area you've talked about which is so vital for leaders, resilience. You've got mm. a, a chapter on resilience Yeah. Um, and you were very vulnerable yourself in this which is vulnerability is one of the things you talk about in the book and the fact you just mentioned it here about it. people should understand who I am and we should understand who you are and we know that builds up a lot of trust and, and then we can get the conflict and other things we've talked about but you, you talk about here about pushing on through and about almost preparing yourself by practicing to be resilient and I'm going to quote from your book here you said you had a new job as a CIO you'll, you'll remember where it was uh, you're in the middle of a divorce 
you were in the middle of an MBA and then suddenly there was a takeover coming for your business as well. And you said, if I can't handle the pressure now, then I'd better reevaluate my life goals. This is just preparing for what lies ahead. So suck it up, cupcake. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That was my mantra. Yeah. And there, there, there were many times I tried to bargain with myself, you know, maybe I could, you know, release this. You know, one of the things I was going to do was put off my MBA. But I decided not to do that because I already had form after dropping out of my undergraduate law degree. So I figured if I put that on right. the shelf again, I'm likely to never go back to it, which would be a really bad sign. So once, once is a bit of fun, twice is a habit. So I decided to push ahead. And, and that was exactly right. It was, okay, this pressure's here for a reason. And um, I have an opportunity here to learn to go through it. And like any sort of adversity that comes at you, you can either embrace it and take it on board and learn how to make it your friend, or you can reject it and run away from it. But unfortunately in life, mm. uh, that which we resist persists so we know it's going to come back and get us at some other time. And I think mm. also in the back of my head, I'm a stubborn bastard. And I figured that, you know, <laughs> that inviting a failure uh, in something that I was absolutely prepared to not fail at was just not an option. And so I just doubled down. Now, there was a toll and a price to pay for that. But getting through the other side of it, I understood better what my limits were what I could tolerate and mm. you know as you'll find if you've ever run a marathon or done a triathlon or given birth to a child which I'm yet to do you'll know that these things are difficult uncertain challenging and tough but incredibly mm. worth it once you get through the other side do you think this is for everyone in terms of pushing people to the point that they're prepared and do you think this is a fundamental leadership criteria to be able to cope with this really high level of resilience these days? Yes, I think it is. I think generally the world is requiring us to be more resilient uh, all mm. sorts of ways. And I think the better we can cope with that, you know, the happier we're going to be as people because we don't get thrown off track by things that we should be able to get ourselves through. So building resilience, in my view, it's probably one of the easier leadership capabilities to build because you don't have to go looking for opportunities. They come at mm. you all the time, right? Disappointments, setbacks, adversity, crises, they're constantly coming at you in your field of vision. And so the thing is, how do you actually respond to those? Now, of course, there is no virtue or nobility in suffering under extreme pressure that you don't need to be under, which is why in the mm -hmm. book, I have a couple of tools that help you to think about how to actually reduce the pressure and cope with more adversity without actually folding and cracking. Things like just basic questions about bringing perspective to anything that you do, understanding in the mm -hmm. old Stephen Covey model, you know, what is it that that I can really do and focus on and make a difference to? What can I influence and what can I influence? Because mm. I shouldn't worry about that and I shouldn't waste undue energy focusing on those things because that'll just make me scared and paranoid. So those little tools that actually make it easy for you to handle. And then as you do more and more and more of it, your confidence builds. So coming out of that time that we spoke about before, I had a pretty rough time in the early 2000s. Uh, coming out the mm. other side of that, I felt bulletproof. I felt as though mm -hmm. uh, if mm -hmm. I can get through that, I'm, I'm ready for anything. And then every mm. time you get that opportunity to stretch yourself further and put yourself under more pressure and test that, every time you come through the other side of that, it reinforces it and it gives you more confidence yet again. I completely agree with you. And I've spoken about this a lot with people about getting them into their stretch zone, trying new things, building that capability, building that confidence so that you can go again at a higher level and you, and you know you're up for it the next time and you feel really m mentally up for it. Have you got any tips and tricks for people who you see? This guy, this girl, they're great. They've got great potential, but 
they're not as resilient perhaps as they're going to need to be. So what do they do to stop themselves working 18 hours a day, burning out, getting to the point where they're no good to themselves, their family, their friends, the business? How do you get people from, they've got great potential, they really look like they've got a future ahead of them, but they're struggling because they're just not doing the right things. What tips and tricks have you got for people? Yeah, so the, <laughs> well, there's a range of things. So the first thing, when, when I just go back to your comment about stretching people in, I think that's really the key mm -hmm. to everything. And to stretch people properly, mm. you need to have a really good understanding of where they are currently. Because every individual is entirely different. And even though we have a very well-worn and tested set of leadership tools that are foundational and basic that, that are going to work in any circumstance, the nuances of each situation, the nuances of every environment and every individual, you need to take those into account. So some people can take a little bit of stretch, you know, 1% more than they've demonstrated in the past, and you need to give them that and let them take time to stretch out to where they can. Other people, you can just keep piling it on mm -hmm. and they'll keep showing it, they'll handle it and they'll ask for more. And so knowing the individual is really, really mm -hmm. important. Now, as you do this, the, the critical thing is that challenging and coaching are an iterative cycle. So when I challenge you, I'll say, all right, I think you can mm -hmm. stretch a bit further. I'm gonna set a goal here that's really, really going to push you and challenge you and stretch you. That doesn't mean just loading you up with work. An oppressive workload mm -hmm. doesn't challenge you. It just frustrates you and buries you. And that's not a way to get good performance out of someone. So part of this whole process is clearing off the decks so that your people are working on the right things all the time. And this goes right back to our mm -hmm. first chapter on value, which is work out what the things are that create the most value and then do those things. The top two, three, four things maybe. Rule a line under that. Just drop all the other shit. Don't worry about it. It's marginal. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. marginal. Yep. And if you're going after those really big licks of value, the things that are the biggest value levers for your team and the organization, and you nail those, you absolutely nail them, then you're going to perform incredibly well. Your team's going to be a high-functioning team, and you're not going to burn yourself out because you're working on the right things, and it mm -hmm. has that level of satisfaction and impact to it when you get that delivery done. So with each person, it's that, it's that matter of finding what that sweet spot is. For, for every person, you'll be, you'll be familiar with Jörg Stoddson Law, which is you know, increasing stress also improves performance to a point, and then you get to this point of no return where performance starts to plateau out or decline. And if you can find what that mm. sweet spot is, what you're looking for is that intersection between anxiety and boredom. Right? You, want, you want to keep people right up there. Your very best people on their very best day they're going to give you, I don't know, 80 to 85%, unless you as a leader can stretch them to bring more out of them because they have more to give. Almost everyone has more to give. Mm. I love that. And so to, to paraphrase, you've got to understand people as individuals. Yes, you can challenge and stretch them, but you've got to combine that with some coaching. It's an iterative process, as you say. Support them along the journey. Focus them on the absolute high-value things to the organisation. Get the other stuff off the table. Yeah, absolutely. And when you find out that they choose not to stretch and you've reached their limit of stretch, mm. if that doesn't meet your minimum acceptable standard for performance, then maybe it's not the right place for them. Maybe they'll be happier in a less demanding yeah. job somewhere else. And if you're serious about building that right team, well, you've got to take those hard calls as well. That's right. Leadership's not for everyone, is it? No. Let's look at working at the right level again. I think it's so vital as a leader to see what is it to be a leader? What's your primary role? What capabilities do you know? What does your boss expect? I love that question because I think the clarity is absolutely right. 
How does a leader, when they come in in the morning, know they're doing the right things? How do they know they're not doing the wrong things? And, uh, uh, and they're too tactical and they're just wasting their time and they're just doing stuff they're comfortable with. How do they know fundamentally, I'm doing the right things as a leader today? Well, of course, it's going to be different at every level you're at. So a frontline supervisor as a leader is going to have a completely different day to a chief executive in a large organisation. Uh, it's characterised by a number of things. The first thing is the level of detail into which you can inject yourself. And as a frontline supervisor or a, or a you know, team leader, you can do a lot of things. Roll the sleeves up, um, work with your people. You can be right down in that nitty gritty every day. But if you try that as a CEO, you're going to run into trouble really, really quickly. So as a, as a team leader, you'll be a mile deep and an inch wide. When you get to the CEO role, it's completely different. You're a mile wide and an inch deep. And so it's understanding mm -hmm. the level of detail that you can jump into that is the right level for you to operate at. And then, of course, recognising that at the level below you, the people who are reporting to you, they have a job to do as well. And that job should be clearly defined for them. And rather than you stepping down mm -hmm. to assist them when their work isn't of appropriate standard and quality, you need to leave a vacuum for them to step into that. And so it's really about not over-functioning mm -hmm. and over-compensating for your people when they choose to not perform the way they need to. Now, this is a real discipline, right? Because it's a lot easier to just roll your sleeves up and do it yourself because you can always hang the mantle on your back of, I always deliver. I'm the guy who gets results. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very comforting. And everyone sees it as being something really noble. I just get the job done. I lead from the front. It was just complete bullshit because it's much harder mm -hmm. to have the discipline and the control to stand back and lead your people and demand that they step up to do their roles properly than you stepping down to overcompensate for them. So the first thing about a leader is knowing what that level is. The first thing is to understand mm. what level should I be operating at when I'm in this layer of the organisation. And then that also has an associated time horizon. So for a team leader or frontline supervisor, their time horizon might be this shift, no more than this week. As a CEO, you're looking out five to 10 years. You're, you're supposed to be thinking about the perpetuation of the organization. How do I make this company grow mm. profitably and sustainably? And how do I know that when I'm mm. long gone, this company is still going well? And so you've got a completely different time horizon to deal with, and you've got completely different levels of information to get involved in. And you can't do any of this without having a strong team below you that you trust to do their jobs and you expect that they will do their jobs. Let's move to the final chapter. And you talked about a number of things in here about what the CEO does, but I guess you could apply these to leaders of big teams as well, but tell me if I'm wrong. And you've talked about here, they need to set the tone, the pace and the standard for the business. Tell me mm. more about this. Yeah, this was funny. This, this came to me after much soul searching. I had a friend ask me at a party on a Saturday night what I actually did for a living. And I said, well, I'm, you know, <laughs> puff my chest out, I'm chief executive of a major energy business. And she said, yeah, I, I know, I know, uh -huh. Marty, but what do you actually do? And it, that question sort of took me back. I started to describe some of the ways in which I spent my days. And I said, well, for example, yesterday I was doing this and then I was doing that and I flew here and I did this with this person and this supplier and this customer. And so I spoke about all these things and I realized that the look on her face was, mate, you're talking shit. So I went away to think about <laughs> what, what is it that characterizes and absolutely encapsulates this role for me? And I came on those three things. 
As a CEO, I set the tone, the pace, and the standard for the organization. Now, they talk a lot about, particularly when they talk about boards of directors, they talk about this concept of tone from the top. You set the tone in terms of, what am I prepared to accept? What do I set as the minimum acceptable standard for behavior in the organization? How do we do things? It's really a cultural setting. What's the culture of the organization that we're trying to create, and how do we promote that and foster that through the organization? So I'm responsible for tone. I'm the guy that sets the tone of what do we do when we find someone who has fraudulently cheated on their timesheets? What do we do with that? Is that an instant Mm -hmm. dismissal? Is it Mm a, oh, well, everyone's sort of doing it, no harm, no foul? What do you do in those situations when you get tested on how to deal with those breaches? So that's tone. The pace, Mm. I think you'll see I described in the book, it was my job as CEO to be unreasonably driven by timing to drive unreasonable Mm. deadlines, to be irrational almost about the deadlines I was going to put on the organization because no one was going to go faster than me. No one. They were only going to go slower than me. Mm -hmm. I'm the one who sets the pace. And so uh, irrational is probably not quite the right word because as much as I would say, we've got to target this sort of time frame for this initiative. This is critical to our growth. It's critical that we get this done. Uh, In the market we're in, it needs to be done by the end of financial year. And... I'd throw an ambit claim out there, but that started the conversation. And then the executives around me would say, oh, come on, we can't do that. That's ridiculous. So I'd say, hmm, okay, well, let's suspend our disbelief for a minute. Let's say we did want to do that. What would it take? What additional resources would we need? How would we need to do things differently? How would we need to structure ourselves? And so we start having a different conversation about that. And then what we end up with is always something mm-hmm. that's less ambitious than my ambit claim for, for doing something quickly, but always much, much faster then would have been the natural instinct of someone to offer up. So setting that pace is really important, getting that momentum going. Mm. And not just in those moments, but also Mm -hmm. when we talk about things like excellence over perfection. Perfectionism absolutely freezes organisations. People are so worried about making a mistake or making the wrong decision that they just get frozen and value atrophies. It's like, you know, sclerotic arteries, you know, no value can flow through. (laughs) And so having this yeah. concept of pace and momentum and, you know, just keep going, okay? The, the words that used to come out of my mouth all the time, that's good enough. Hey, that's good enough. Let's keep going. That's good enough. And I always say that a decision that's made today that's 80% right is infinitely better than a decision next week that's 85% right, which is infinitely better than a decision next month that's 90% right. You make that call with what you've got and you keep moving. Yeah. And you keep an eye on it and you adjust as you go. But momentum is absolutely critical. And then, of course, standard is all about quality of efficiency of everything in what we do. What standards do we hold ourselves to? Do we benchmark against another team that is equally poor? Or do we take global benchmarks and seek to be first quartile? How do we actually look at our role and what our ambition is? And what standard do we set for quality and and cost and, you know, how we do things with our customers and what's, what's our customer service like, all of those things. And so the standard that we present is really going to determine the culture as much as anything else. Yeah, I love those three. I think they're brilliant. And it shows so much about the fact that a CEO is the ultimate role model and the top team have absolutely got to live by all the things they put down. You talk about values a lot, you talk about the purpose a lot, etc. for the business too, which is absolutely right. And you've got to be, you've got to be there setting the tone. And I love the pace. You talk about that a lot in your chapter on ambiguity as well. 
This book's fantastic. You've got lots of very clear guidelines, great questions at the end of every chapter, so it's very clear for people what they need to do next, and a chapter at the end called Joining the Dobbs brings the whole thing together. I'd like to finish, though, with a, with a question we put to any of the people we interview, Marty, and I haven't told you I'm going to ask, ask you this question, but I'm sure you're going to fly with it, which is, who get your vote for Gritty Leader of all time. So bear in mind we're on the Gritty Leaders podcast. You can choose anyone living or dead. Who would get your vote for Gritty Leader of all time and why? Yeah, look, it's funny. There are a few gritty leaders in politics that I could point to, but I like to stay away from politics generally. Probably in terms of a gritty leader, it would be a close colleague of mine by the name of Marcus McAuliffe. He was an ex-military guy, and he was just one of those people who was absolutely unflappable in any circumstance. He's the guy who you can rely upon to be cool under pressure. He never took a backward step no matter what was going on around and he would withstand all sorts of flack from above when it came from a CEO, from around when it came from jealous peers and he would make his business work no matter what and his people trusted him implicitly because of that. He never once let go of his sense of integrity and his sense of pride in the job and his sense of needing to create value and achieve. And I think that, to me, was a great example. Mm. I'm still very close to him. Uh, a great example of someone who you know, isn't well-known, but when I think of gritty leaders, he's the guy that comes to mind straight away. Perfect. Love it. It's a great when we move away from the Elon Musks and the Steve Jobs when we uh, ask people this question. Uh, and it's lovely when people... <laughs> uh, although they're pretty gritty, but it's great when we hear a, a personal favourite and somebody you know. Now, tell us, uh, people listening... How do they access the podcast and tell us a bit about when the book comes out? Right, so the podcast is called No Bullshit Leadership and you'll find it on any good podcast player. The book is released in the US on August the 31st of this year and for pre-purchases we have plenty of good bonuses going around at the moment. So pre-purchases martingmore.com and that's probably the best place to get us or on social media at your CEO mentor, which is our business name. But martingmore.com has got the whole shooting match if you want to go there. Well, thank you very much, Martin. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Some real gems for our listeners to listen to. And good luck with everything and best of luck with this book coming out. I know people are going to love it. Thanks very much, Ian. Thanks for having me. It's fantastic to be here. So, Ben, there we have it. We've heard what Martin's got to say. He's no nonsense, isn't he? He's straight out there. What did you think of the interview? Hey, I reckon that was fun to record. I'm gutted I missed it. He's full of character, isn't he? What Absolutely. Did, what did I think? Do you know what? As with every book that tells the story of a leader's journey, it gives us an outside-in perspective. And I think, kind of, that's Marty's message as well. As leaders, we've got to get that outside-in perspective. We've got to get up in the stands, see what's actually happening on the pitch... Yeah, and we had lots of examples of this as, as Marty was talking. We shouldn't be friends. We're here to do uh, a job. Let's be friendly about it. But we're not here to be friends. That, that was one. We're here to create value. What does value mean here? That's another. There was that great one, wasn't there? Leading from the front, complete ball. Not a lot of room for softness in the organisation he was in with the shareholders he had, I sense. And, you know, and that's another piece, isn't it, for, for any leader? Get up in the stands, see what pitch we're on. Yeah. Is it that kind of a pitch? 
in which case uh, it's a tough gig by the way there's lots to deliver mm. and we've got to work out at what point does that corporate objective meet the the human needs of our team what level is that going to happen uh, that, that's that's a tough gig but again get up in the stands mm. uh, understand what pitch we're on and what's going on uh, on the pitch i reckon ian there's there's an episode for us in here you know, mm-hmm. leading from the front complete ball uh, <laughs> I, I agree by the way how about we build an episode though around the myths and maxims of of leadership let's torpedo some of those yeah absolutely uh, and marty torpedoed a fair few of them so let's build on that and let's create an episode that'll be fun then Thanks, Marty. Thank you for that idea. And do you know what? The last thing, I mean, I love that Marty uh, chose as his gritty leader of all time, his colleague, uh, Marcus McAuliffe. And why did he choose him? He was unflappable. Mm. I quite like that. Um, We've said before, haven't we, that gritty leadership is about keeping your head when all others are losing theirs. And, you know, being unflappable is as Marty has put it. So there we have it. Marty G. Moore, I hope you enjoyed it. He's got a book coming out on the 31st of August at the same time as this podcast called No Bullshit Leadership. It's a great book. I recommend it highly. And if you've got any questions, any thoughts, uh, any ideas about anything we're doing and anything about this podcast, send it in to ben at benwales.com or ian at ianwind.com. And don't forget, we'll see you in three weeks, not two weeks. Bye for now.